You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. All right, I'll pray and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the opportunity to continue our study in Job, and I pray that you would just speak to us as we as we look at these conversations back and forth. And we also want to lift up Dale and Renetta and, and Jed as they're traveling uh, at this very hour uh, on their way to serve you. And Lord, I just pray that their trip be smooth and easy and uh, just full of fruit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we are in chapters 20 and 21 tonight, and... Uh, we're, we're about halfway <laughs> through the book of Job, and we're wrapping up tonight the second round of conversations, and so we get to Zophar uh, one more time, and he's the youngest of Job's three friends, and, and kind of what we see in these two chapters is this theological conflict, and so we've seen and we talked about just glimpses of this idea of, of retribution theology or this, the idea that you know, the wicked are always punished and the righteous are always blessed. And we've seen that from each of these individuals. And Job has rebutted that idea briefly. But here in these chapters, Zophar is really going to double down on that. And uh, Job is really going to push back on it. And they're both going to do so with some specifics. And so it's uh, interesting to see. We'll start with chapter 20. It says, Then Zophar the name of thought answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Do you not know this from old, since man was placed on the earth, that the exulting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? Though his height mount up to the heavens, and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, Where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more." nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach, it is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil and will not swallow it down. From the profit of his trading, he will get no enjoyment. For he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. Because he knew no contentment in his belly, he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. There was nothing left after he had eaten, therefore his prosperity will not endure. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him. To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth and comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. This is a tough chapter, <laughs> and uh, it's pretty direct. And so let's see if we can kind of decipher what Zophar's saying. And we're going to look at this argument 
uh, just the content of his argument and the content of Job's rebuttal. But I think it's first important to understand why is Zophar speaking? Why is he talking? What's he tell us? And we've got to remember, again, uh, you know, these three men stated that their purpose of coming to Job was to provide comfort and sympathy. Uh, but Zophar's own words here at the beginning of chapter 20 tell us a different story. And notice what he says. He says, my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. What's he talking about here? Haste. So if you look up haste in a dictionary, it implies urgency. And Zophar's telling us that his thoughts and his emotions are coming upon him rapid fire. They're urging him to respond with urgency. They're, they're deep within inside of him. All of his emotions are saying, speak up, speak up. And so Zophar is just saying, I've got all of this bottled up inside me, and I can't stay quiet anymore, Job. He says, I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding, a spirit answers me. And so if you think about censure, it, it implies this reprimand. I don't know if you pay attention to politics, but... You know, when they were talking about impeaching President Trump the second time, there was an argument about whether do we impeach him or do we just censor him. And so it's the same idea where a censure is not as far as an impeachment. It's just a formal reprimand, slap on the wrist publicly. You know, you did bad. And so Zophar is saying, I hear this censure. I hear that it insults me. Him and his friends, they've been reprimanded by Job. And in the mind of Zophar... That's an insult. And what's happened is it's stirred up his spirit. It's stirred up his emotions. Right? And he says, my spirit's compelling me to speak. And I'm going to speak because I'm the one that understands this situation. He says, my understanding, out of my understanding, a spirit answers me. He's talking about his own spirit. He says, I understand what's going on here. And I'm compelled to speak. I've got the certain knowledge that you need to hear, Job. And so in Zophar's approach here, he's opening his mouth out of a position of arrogance. Because according to him, he's got all the answers that Job needs. And notice there is no petition to God. There's no petition to God on behalf on Zophar's behalf. And he's not even calling on Job to petition to God. He's saying, listen to me. And it's almost like if God plays a role here, as far as Zophar's concerned... It's that God is going to use Zophar. God's going to speak through Zophar to Job because he's the one with certain knowledge. So if we think about that, if just why is Zophar speaking, is we, if we find ourselves in situations where we're going to provide counsel to somebody else, right? we have to be very leery of doing so from an arrogant position. Like, I know more than you do. Because, well... We'll see in Job's rebuttal, but how well do you think Job is, is hearing what Zophar has to say? I mean, when you, often when you stand in front of somebody and say, listen, I know better than you, they don't listen very well. Because just like Zophar is saying, you know, I've been reprimanded, it's an insult to me, I'm the one that's going to tell you. So instead of coming from an arrogant position, right, we have to come from a position of love. Our words can't be driven by insult or a hurt ego. That can't be what compels us to respond. But instead, we should be compelled to respond from a position of love and care for this other individual. After all, that's what these three individuals, these three men said they were going to see Job for. Right? But what turns out is the opposite, that they speak out of, out of their own ego. And so we get to uh, this second main section of chapter 20. That's why Zophar is speaking. But then he's going to tell us in verses 4 through 18, 
He's going to tell us this is the way of the wicked. This is what happens to the wicked. And so what's interesting is Job has, we, we talk about not listening or not hearing. Job's just finished this desperate plea in chapter 19, one of the more famous passages of the book, where he's like, I'm crying out for a redeemer, and he boldly proclaims, I know my redeemer lives, and I'm going to see him face to face one day. And it's this stirring speech, right? You can imagine the emotion behind it as Job's speaking those things. But it didn't move so far at all. <laughs> he didn't think twice about it. There's no mention of it. And what we see is just Zophar doubles down on what he and his friends have already told Job. He's like, ah, enough of that. Listen to me. Because again, in his mind, he's got this clear knowledge of Job and his situation. And Job needs to hear it. Job, I figured out your problem. You need to listen to me. And that's what he says in verse 4. He says, do you not know this from old? Since man was placed on the earth. It's just another way for, for Zophar to say, Job, where have you been? Have you not been paying attention? This is common knowledge. It's the way it's always been. It's the way it's always going to be. And we've heard these three men talk about this is what tradition tells us. This is what experience tells us. right? And on top of that, Zophar saying, all of your friends have told you repeatedly, but you refuse to listen. I'm going to tell you one more time. Hear me. He basically goes down the list and he says, listen, Job, what you need to understand is this is the way of the wicked. Six things happen to a wicked man. Six things happen to a wicked man. In verses 5 and 6, he basically says, the life of the wicked man is short and his triumph and joy are fleeting. So it may look like he's on top of the world, but his life is going to be short and his triumph and joy are going to be fleeting. And in verse 7, he basically says, Everything that the wicked man has is going to be lost, including his own position in life. So it may look like he's on top. It may look like he has a lot of stuff, but all that stuff is going to be lost. In verse 8, he insinuates that this life of the wicked man, he's living on a slippery slope, and it just is a path that leads to destruction. In verse 9, he says the, the family of the wicked man is going to distance themselves from him. Because ultimately, the wickedness is going to be found out. He's going to be judged. And the family of this wicked man is going to distance themselves from him. They don't want anything to do with him. In verse 10, he says, The children of this wicked man are going to pay for his mistakes. And then in verse 11, he says, His life's going to cost him. That wicked life's going to cost him. And he's going to eventually return to the dust with nothing. And so it's interesting, there's some parallels here if you're, if you're looking. It's almost like, again, we're seeing some jabs from Zophar. There's some parallels here between what's actually happened to Job and what Zophar's saying happens to the wicked man. And he's telling him, listen, all these things fall upon the wicked man, Job. Why don't you understand this? Again, have you not been paying attention? Now, all of these things are clearly undesirable things i mean how many men wake up in the morning or how many women wake up in the morning and they're looking for these things i i tell i mean this is the internet can enjoy this so maybe i'll give another email or have another meeting about this one but so i tell my wellness classes every and they get a good chuckle out of it but i'm serious and they think it's funny but i tell them every semester if you if you walked over to martin elementary and you pulled out some second or third graders. And you pulled them in the hall one-on-one. -on -one, and
and you asked him one question, said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, if you wrote down all those answers and you brought them back to class, you're not going to get one, I want to be a drug addict. You're not going to get one, I want to be a stripper or a prostitute. Like, you're not going to get any of those. But statistically, we know, I mean, especially in Cumberland County, that out of that classroom, the chances are there's going to be someone that struggles with drugs. All of these things are undesirable things, but yet the wicked man can't get enough of his sin. That's what Zophar's saying. Because the wicked man loves evil and loves his sin. He's talking about that slippery slope, this path to destruction. And it's interesting, he parallels this with the idea of food. He's talking a lot about food here. In verse 12, he says, Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, It's almost like he's drawn a parallel here that says wicked people love sin in the same way that people love food. They want to enjoy every bite of it, and they want to savor it. They don't want it to go away. Right? If you think about Mala, and you think about a bowl of ice cream, and she wants to just enjoy every second of it, and then she wants it to be there and wants to slowly enjoy it, because if it's gone, it's gone, and that's a sad moment. Right? It's the same thing that the sinner's doing here. He's enjoying every bite, and he doesn't want it to be over. And there's some truth in that. If we're honest with ourselves, there's some truth there. Sin can be enjoyed, right? There's this old adage that if it feels good, do it. That might be the mantra of the teenager. But if, if it feels good, do it. So people can enjoy sin, and they often return to it because they enjoy it. But what does it do? This is what Zophar's saying. What does it do? It rottens your bones. In verse 14, he says, Yet his food is turned in his stomach. It's the venom of cobras within him. So the sin, right, is enjoyable on the front end, but then I've got to deal with the consequences. And it turns into this venom of cobras. It's not good for me. It can actually kill me. In verse 16, he says, He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. That's an interesting statement. If you think about he will suck the poison of cobras, you'd ask the question, like, what are you talking about? Like, why would anybody do that? Why would you suck the poison of cobras? But again, think about, if you use that picture of a drug addict, think about any kind of addiction. And the person says, well, I can quit this anytime I want. I don't have a problem. I can quit anytime I want. And what do they do? They keep coming back. They keep coming back. So an alcoholic can see that his addiction is destroying his family, but he keeps going back. He keeps going back to suck the poison of the cobra because he enjoys it too much. That's what Zophar's saying. In verse 17, he says, He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He's not going to turn to good things because his addiction to sin is going to control him. So Zophar's telling Job, Listen, no one desires the things that happen to the wicked. They don't wish these things on themselves, and yet they openly walk into them because their desire for sin is so strong. Sin is addictive, and it's often a slow, it's a slow fade, right? It's not an overnight thing. Like, you wake up five years later, and you're like, how did I get here? But Zophar's saying it's the wrong path, and it's going to lead to death. Now, here's the trick. There's a lot of truth in what Zophar's saying. But the problem, again, is it doesn't apply to Job. It doesn't apply to Job. And if we keep going, we see just how disconnected, how disconnected Zophar is. So in, in verse 19, he's going to get real specific. So we've had multiple conversations with these friends of Job, 
And Job has been accused by every single one of them of being wicked. And Job's even acknowledged that perhaps, maybe, guys, just maybe, there's some unknown sin in my life, and I don't know what it is. But he also resents the fact that his friends have only thrown generalities at him, right? Job has even said, if I have sinned, tell me how. Give me the specifics. You're going to tell me how wicked I am, and yet you have no evidence. And if I am wicked, I'd love to know why. Please tell me. Name my sin. And what we see in verse 19 is Zophar attempts to do that. He says, For he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. It's the first time that we see a specific sin named in relation to Job. And so Zophar is insinuating that Job's wealth and his prosperity has come because he's taken advantage of the poor. So all of these things that he built was not really his. He just took from others. Job sought after all of those things, and he was willing to do whatever it took to get them, even if it was at the expense of other people. But there's just one problem. There's no proof of that. Right? Zophar is grasping his straws. And if I had to guess, just based on human nature, perhaps he's just a little bit jealous of all that Job had acquired. And so he wants to take the man down. Because clearly the descriptions of Job that we get in chapters 1 and 2, they don't support this claim by Zophar at all. Right? That's not what we see. So Zophar's just guessing. He's grasping his straws, trying to take Job down. And then in 20 through 29 of this chapter, as he closes out, it's what we see is like an example of shock therapy. Like... Zophar finishes his speech, and what he's trying to do is shock Job into repentance. He's trying to scare him into repentance. And what we see is he describes the life of a wicked man on the run. He says, even though the wicked man attains all these worldly things, it's not going to be enough. He's going to continue to chase after more and more. And we see that. There's truth in that. We see that probably even in our own lives. I want something, then I want the next thing. And even when I attain what I'm after, it's not enough. I want more. And the ultimate result of this behavior, according to Zophar, is going to be distress, right? And eventually, God's judgment's going to come after this wicked man, and he's going to be on the run. That's the picture that we see in verse 24. He says, he will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. He's fleeing from this iron weapon that's a picture of the strength of God. And eventually, he's going to be caught. Now, Zophar could have said... He could have just simply said, God's going to catch up to you, Job. God always catches up to the wicked man, but that's not what he did because he wants to make a point. So he paints this picture of a wicked man being pierced by an arrow and having it yanked out with his gut still attached. It's a very dark and gruesome picture. It's not the kind of talk that you hear every day. But Zophar wants it to be that. He wants it to be dark. He wants it to be gruesome. Because he's trying to shock Job and get his attention. He's saying, Job, this is what's coming for you. The wicked man is going to be completely consumed. His sin will be revealed, and all of his possessions will be taken away at the result of God's wrath. And this whole chapter, this whole speech, it's drawn a parallel between Job and the wicked man. And the implication is very clear. It's simple. Job, you're wicked. You've taken advantage of the poor for your own gain. 
And this list of things that happens to the wicked man, they've all happened to you. And so that just confirms to us that you're wicked. God's hunting you down, and you can't escape, so you must repent. So I'm, I'm trying to scare you into repenting. But again, the problem is what? It's not true. Job isn't wicked. right? And he's got something to say about Zophar's words. We see that in chapter 21. It says, Then Job answered and said, Keep listening to my words and let this be your comfort. Bear with me and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. As for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled and lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is there not prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in his anger, that they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away? You say God stores up their iniquity for their children. Let him pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care for their houses after them when the number of their months is cut off? Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? One dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, not having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust and the worms cover them. Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked live? Have you not asked those who travel the roads? And do you not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity, that he is rescued in the day of wrath, who declares his way to his face and who repays him for what he has done? When he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. The clods of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows after him. And those who go before him are innumerable. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There's nothing left of your answers but falsehood. So Job's pushing back on what Zophar has claimed happens to the wicked. And remember, Zophar explained or described these six things that happen to the wicked. Their life's going to be short. Their joy is fleeting. Everything they have will be lost. It's a slippery slope to destruction. His family's going to distance themselves from him. His children are going to pay for his mistakes, and it's going to cost him his life. And Joe pushes back on some of this. And the idea is, is listen, Zophar, you say these things, and yet I see these things. I've seen, in verse 7, I've seen the wicked reach old age and have good health. In verse 8, you say the wicked lose it all, even their families. And yet I see that the wicked have large, happy families just like anyone else. In verse 9, he's referring back to Eliphaz, and he says, You say that the houses and possessions of the wicked face the wrath of God, and yet I see that they're completely safe. 
There's no fear or trepidation in them. There's no worry. Verses 10 through 13, he says, You say that prosperity doesn't come to the wicked, and yet I see that they often do prosper. And they prosper almost in every conceivable way. And verse 14 and 15 really strikes to the heart of the issue when he says all of this happens when they openly denounce God. They say to God, depart from us. We don't desire the knowledge of your ways. What's the Almighty that we should serve him? And what do we profit if we pray to him? He says they don't want any part of God, and yet they appear to be very successful. It doesn't make any sense so far. What you're telling me is not what I'm seeing. And he asks a very clear question in verse 17. He says, how often is it the lamp of the wicked's put out? You're telling me these things, and you act as though it's a certainty. And I'm asking you, how often does that really happen? I see the wicked people prosper. And Job's friends, they come back with that. When he pushes back in that way and says, how often does this happen? This is what you're saying, but this is what I'm seeing. The the quick reply is always, well, they're not going to prosper for long. Maybe they do prosper a little, but they're not going to prosper for long. And that's where Job pushes back and says, well, how often does that take place? How long do we have to wait? He talks a lot about punishment being delayed here. And it doesn't make any sense to Job. In verse 19, he says, guys, you say, so maybe they do prosper a little, but God's going to store up his iniquity for their children. God's going to make the children pay for the sins of the father. And according to Job, he says, the wicked need to see it for themselves. He says, let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. What sense does it make for their kids to pay? Let them pay. That's the only way that justice makes sense. That's what Job's saying. And in verse 23 to 26, he says, One dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure, his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist. What's he talking about? He says, one dies having it all. And then he says, another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted prosperity. So you got one guy that's got it all, you got one guy that's got nothing. And Job makes the point in verse 26, they lie down alike in the dust and the worms cover them. They both die with nothing. He's making the point that there's no real difference. It doesn't appear to be any real difference between the experiences of the wicked and the righteous. Both deal with the good and the bad. And this idea that you're pushing on me that the righteous always prosper and that the evil always fail doesn't always ring true. Life's more complicated than that. And what happens is ultimately, regardless of what they have or don't have, death's going to claim both of them. So Job closes verses 27 through 34. And he essentially tells his friends, quit believing a lie to suit your own interest. Quit believing a lie to suit your own interests. He says, I know, behold, I know your thoughts. Job's saying, I know what you're after. You're thinking, the way you think, it's so dishonest because you're out to get me. Your logic is so obvious. You declare that the wicked suffer. And then you see me suffer. And so you declare that I'm wicked. You claim that the knowledge that you've shared with me, you go all the way back to verse 20, I mean, chapter 20. 
verse 4, Zophar says, Do you not know this from old? You claim that this knowledge has been around and it's universal. And Job says, if you really believe that, then you haven't gotten out much. Because any traveler could tell you otherwise. That what you claim isn't true in reality. In verse 29 he says, have you not asked those who travel the roads? In other words, have you ever left your house? Have you talked to anybody outside? Because if you, if you gave them this spiel, they'd push back too. Because they've seen what I've seen. That the wicked don't always get destruction. Sometimes they prosper. Sometimes those that are righteous are the ones that get destruction. He says, what you claim isn't true in reality. He says, you three came to comfort me. But these words don't provide comfort because they're lies. You're lying to me. So what we see is that in, inside of these comments, if you can read between the lines... If you can read between what Job is really saying back to Zophar, you can see this belief that Job has that I'm innocent and I'm eventually going to be proven to be innocent. Your lies aren't going to change my mind. So, it's kind of a tricky tricky place to leave off there, but what, what do we do with those two chapters and what do they tell us in 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 terms of we walk out that door and what do these two chapters teach us? I got five things for you. The first is what we talked about at the very beginning. As a believer, my words in any situation, but, but most assuredly in a situation where I'm providing counsel, my words should never be driven by insult or ego. Instead, I should always be striving to speak from a position of love because when i speak out of a position of insult or ego rarely do good things come out and you've seen in these conversations with job and his friends when with job or any of these three men when they speak from a position of insult or ego the other man's not hearing the other man's not hearing and nothing's getting accomplished so we should always strive to speak from a position of love the second thing is we have to understand that even though, even though Zophar is off point here and what he's saying about Job is not true, some of what he's saying is true. It just doesn't apply to Job. He's right. Sin is, ad- is addictive. And we need to be very careful about that. Because it's easy for us to look at someone else and, and make the comment or even just think, oh, I could, I could never get sucked into that. But the truth is, we can. And if we, and if we dip our toe in the water, the next thing you know, we'll be taking a bath in it. And so we have to understand that sin is addictive. And we need to avoid it at all costs. And as believers, who are called to live in a community of believers... That's where it comes in play. It's, it's so important for us to call somebody else out or point somebody else out. Hey, you're headed down the wrong path, man. Get your toe out of the water. The third thing is that presumption or assumption, it shouldn't drive our counsel. Right? So 
I can't assume things about another individual. I can't assume that I understand the situation completely when the truth is that I don't. Because what happens is I, I start to speak into the life of another individual just like Zophar did. And although I may be speaking general truth, it may not apply at all. And what happens is I may do more harm than good. So I can't allow presumption to drive my counsel with other people. Fourth, our, our primary strategy when dealing with others, especially the lost, it shouldn't be to shock them into repentance like Zophar tried to do, but to love them into repentance. We talked about that where it talks in Romans about you know, what draws a man to repentance is the love of God. It's not the wrath of God. The wrath of God is real, but it's not my job to paint the goriest picture possible like Zophar did in order to hope that I can scare an individual into repentance. If an individual can come to an understanding of the immense love that God has for them, then repentance will happen. The last thing is just the idea that you've heard Dale talk about on Sunday mornings the last couple of weeks is this idea of striving for a heavenly home. Job's right that some people have it all and some people don't. All of us are going to deal with some type of tragedy or difficulty in our life. It doesn't matter if we have a lot of things, if we're completely righteous, if we're completely wicked, or we have nothing. We're all going to deal with those things. And he's completely right that ultimately, like he says in verse 26, each of those individuals lie down alike in the dust and the worms cover them. I mean, we're all headed for the grave. So if I'm living for today, if I'm living for earthly things, it doesn't matter because the outcome's going to be the same. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave with nothing. So if I'm not striving for a heavenly home, then I'm never going to have peace. I'm always going to be searching for the next thing. I'm always going to be living in distress. I'm always going to be in some type of on the run. I've got to strive for the heavenly home because that's where I'm only going to find peace and, and pure joy. I think it's too often it's easy for us to get get caught up in what am I after? What material good am I after today? Or, or, you know, what does this person think about me? Or how can I gain this person's influence? When at the end of the day, none of those things really matter. The the only thing that matters is does God know me? And do I know Him? So we're to strive for a heavenly home above all things. So next week we'll start the third round and final round of conversations. Everybody can take a deep sigh of relief. We can get through these conversations, then we get to hear God speak, and that's what we're all waiting to hear. So uh, next week we will be in 2023 and 24. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Uh, just the recording of this this story of Job and the things that it can teach us and hopefully the things that it can head off in our lives. Uh, I hope that we do understand that the seriousness of sin in our lives and in the lives of others and uh, that we would strive for a heavenly home and not strive for the things of this world. Uh, That can be a lot easier said than done, Lord, but I pray that you would give us a focus and a desire to know you and to be loyal to you above all things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.